Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curve, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curve. Hello there, it's six o'clock, I'm Michelle Jubery and this is Jubes and Co, the show where we'll get into some of the things that have got you talking today. Now, whole life tariffs, should it ever be possible to appeal them uh, with a view to receiving a reduced sentence? Don't forget, by the way, that if you get one of these uh, sentences, you normally have committed the worst of the worst of the worst crimes. With that in mind, I say categorically no, you should never, ever be able to appeal them to try and reduce your sentence. Am I wrong? And it's been reported today that UK foreign aid courts have forced 40,000 Syrian children out of school. That makes me sad, but more than anything, it strengthens my resolve that it's high time we did a full review of what exactly we are doing when it comes to our foreign aid policy. Let me ask you this, if you were in charge of it, what would you do differently? Also, do you think that the UK has a problem with alcohol? Many do, we'll be looking at that. And finally, do you live somewhere posh? How do we even know these days what is posh and what isn't? Are there any markers? What does that look like? Keeping me company here in the studio until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, Jake Wallace-Simmons, the editor of the Jewish Chronicle, columnist at The Independent, Mary Judeski, and Joe Phillips, the former spin doctor. And you know the drill on Jubes and Co by now, don't you? It's not just about us, although you three are very welcome indeed. It's about you at home as well. What is on your mind tonight? What are you thinking? What are your thoughts on the topics we'll be discussing? And what have we missed? What are you talking about that we are not? Get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Don't forget, of course, we're on YouTube. Uh, we've got an app. Uh, we're across social media. And I know... It's quite sunny outside at the moment, isn't it? So if you're sitting in front of your telly thinking to yourself, that garden looks appealing, worry not. You don't have to choose between me and your garden. You can take me with you. We are on DAB Plus Radio. So you've got no excuses, my friends. We will follow you pretty much everywhere. So we will. Right, uh, first up though, I need to get something off my chest. I have been doing this job for less than a year now. And in that time, I have lost count of the amount of reports that we've shared about children being killed by their parents or guardians. There's names now that so many of you will be familiar with. Arthur Labinger Hughes, Star Hobson, to name just two. But there are many, many more. One child a week, on average, is killed in the UK by someone who's supposed to love them. While I talk to you, I'm going to show you some of those beautiful little children that have been killed. I bring this up because today we hear the news that the disgusting human being Tracy Connolly, the woman whose son Peter, or Baby P as many of us know him, died having suffered more than 50 injuries, is to now be released again from prison. This is of course a story that we are all too familiar with. Baby P, like countless other children, failed not just by their guardians, but by two, by our services. We all know the situation, don't we? 
the children are on the at-risk register and they come into contact over and over and over again with the services, whether that's social workers, hospitals, doctors, whoever it is, yet again and again and again, we fail them. And we always hear the same thing, don't we? Lessons will be learned, things will be different, but no, around and around we go. And again and again, sorry, but the animals that abuse them are ultimately allowed out to walk the streets and at some point live a relatively normal life. Now, as an adult who myself was on the at-risk register as a child, admittedly, I am one of the lucky ones. But I beg, enough now. Please, let's properly look after our children and please, let's properly punish those who hurt them. Right, I feel much better for that, but I'm sorry I couldn't uh, hear that story about Baby P's mum. And I use the term mum loosely, by the way. You're not a mum if you do that to your child or let someone else do uh, that to your child. And I'm sick of it. We cover this all the time. And as a new mum myself, it hurts me way more than it ever used to. I don't know why. Maybe it's just it brings it onto your consciousness more. But it's enough. We've got to all stand together. We've got to push people. We've got to draw a line. We've got to look after our children, haven't we? I mean, it's just awful, isn't it? Sorry, everybody. I know I like on Jubes and Co. I like to start with an upbeat tempo. But I just, I saw that story today and I just thought I can't let it pass me by. I can't. Anyway, my rant's over. So let's move on to the top story, uh, shall we? Ian Stewart, uh, who murdered his wife and fiance, Wayne Cousins, the former police officer who kidnapped, raped and murder, murdered Sarah Everard. We're both, well, we're all familiar with these guys by now, aren't we? They were given whole life orders which essentially means that they'll be never released from prison. But get this, the Court of Appeal is now considering whether to reduce their sentences. A lot of of stuff is infuriating me today, you can tell. I might have got out of bed the wrong side. But it made me quite furious, Jake. I'm going to start with you on this, because the people that are getting these orders, to me anyway, they are the lowest of the low in society. The crimes that they have committed are horrendous. And I think if you're if you're given one of these orders, that's it. It's game over. I don't want you redeemed. I don't want you at some point wandering around, whether it's under license or not. I don't even think you should be able to appeal your sentence. And the fact that you would even try, by the way, I'm astonished at the audacity. Where do yeah. you stand on it? I have to say I, I agree with you. Um, I think that while we've got to be careful that these whole life sentences, which are an extreme measure for extreme crimes, there's no creep involved, as in they don't get applied more and more and more and become, you know, almost the norm. They've got to be, they're at the extreme end of the spectrum, they must be used as such. We've got to be careful about that. But at the same time, I agree with you. The, the, the life sentence that we forget about is that suffered by the victims and the families and the friends of the victims. They're suffering a sort of a life sentence, which is the memories, the suffering, mm-hmm. the trauma. That's not going to go away. There's no forgive and forget for them. They're going to have to, even if they forgive, they'll be unable to forget. They're going to live with that suffering for the rest of their lives. It can't be right that someone like Wayne Cousins, who took uh, Sarah Everard's life and devastated her family and indeed the whole nation, can say after a few years, well, actually, you know what? I've moved on. It's time for us all to move on. Let's reduce my sentence. It can't be right. See, I can't even believe the order. I mean, to be honest, though, I mean, I'm, I'm saying I can't believe, but I would never behave in the way that these people do in the first instance. So we're obviously on a different wavelength. But the audacity, Joe, to even 
uh, even have a conversation as that criminal as to, oh, yes, let's look at appealing and talking to... I wouldn't even have the audacity and the shame. And certainly not so soon after. Mm. I mean, maybe 20, 25 years, 30 years down the line. No, never for me, but anyway. But I think, you know, there are a couple of things here. I completely agree with, with what Jake says. It's ever so easy for us to go, we're outraged, we want the strongest sentence possible, and before you know it, you've got full life terms for lots more people. The fact that it is so rare, there are 64 in the country at the moment, um, and the fact that it is so rare shows the severity of the crimes, and it also shows the way in which judges have to decide on that. The thing that I think a lot of people will struggle with is that somebody is sentenced to life, not a full life sentence, a life sentence can be as little as 15 years. Mm. And that, I think, is where it, it, it's difficult for quite understandably outraged members of the public, victims, as you said, Jake, or victims' families, to think, well, hang on, you know, if you're 25 and you're jailed for 15 years, you've still got quite a lot of life ahead of you. Um, so I think there are, there are questions about that, and I think there are questions about sentencing, and I think... Um, what we shouldn't be doing is a knee-jerk reaction, however abhorrent and however appalled we are by crimes. If we believe in any sort of restorative justice, there has to be somewhere, maybe you put in after so many years, that somebody can say, I wish to appeal. I, I mean, I completely agree with you, and I think it's far too soon for Wayne Cousins to be doing this. If he'd got a shred of remorse or feeling, you wouldn't even go down this route. I mean, at the moment, the only person who can reduce a a full life sentence is the Home Secretary on compassionate grounds. Yeah, Mary, Jo mentions there about redemptive uh, societies, rehabilitation, all that kind of stuff. I do actually um, believe in, you know, redemption, rehabilitation, all the rest of it. For people like shoplifters and things like that, fine. But I do think that there is a line, there's a, there's a line, and we can debate where that line is perhaps, but there is a line. And if you cross that line, if you're there and you're torturing your own children, I mean, it's so bad that I'm sorry, you can't be redeemed actually, you've had your opportunities, that's it, you're done. Am I wrong? Well, I have a lot of sympathy for that view, but I don't completely share it. That's all right. Um, where I do share the view is that I think until very recently, sentences were really quite light. And the way they were presented was somebody is being sentenced to, as you might say, 15 years or whatever. But it was absolutely standard that somebody would serve half their sentence and then they would be released on parole. Now, that, 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 that has been altered, I think, and there's more discretion about it. And you serve more, I think, maybe two thirds, three quarters of your sentence as standard. Um, and I think that's a very good thing because, you know, you see these sentences emblazoned all over the newspapers that sound really tough But in actual practice, they're not. And people were getting wise to that. And I think there was quite a a sensible revolt against it. Um, I'm also completely as as shocked as you are, really, that Wayne Cousins, of all people, should be trying to appeal his whole life sentence. Now He's barely been convicted. Mm. How how many days has he actually been in prison for this? I mean, that, that sort of makes me completely indignant. But I also think that... In the fullness of time, if we're looking down the road, maybe 20 years, you would say that people on whole life sentences 
not before 20 years, but say after 20 years, they could lodge an appeal. Not for not for complete freedom, for, for, for maybe being transferred to an open prison, maybe um, some form of licence under very strict conditions. But I do think that the idea that somebody will be in prison basically for the whole of their life and the idea that they would never, ever be given a chance to show that maybe they have really, really reformed. Yeah, I, I, find that, I, I, I find that just really the other side of your line. Well, I, I can almost guarantee we can set a date in 20 years and we can review this um, opinion and see if I've changed it, but I don't think I will ever change my mind. You know, 20 years, you're in prison for 20 years, well, boo-hoo. I don't think you should be allowed out or even to appeal. I think the difficulty with, with that argument um, is that what you're advocating is a justice system which has no extreme of life means life. You're saying that there is not going to be any uh, any single crime. Me? That's go- no, well, not you, no, sorry. Right, I was going to say, what? <laughs> not you. Not, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm Mary, agreeing, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. yeah I'm talking to Mary. Soft yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> um, that we're going to have a, a, a spectrum of justice that goes from a slap on the wrist for shoplifting all the way through to murder, and at no point on that spectrum are we going to say you get a life sentence and you're going to die in prison and that's non-negotiable. I think that that um, sets a very worrying precedent because it sends a message to society and indeed to the victims and the families of the victims that, ju- that that sort of extreme crime is never going to receive an extreme punishment, that the, ex- the, the most extreme measures we will go to is, after 20 years, we'll think about it again. The, 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 the victims and the families of the victims are suffering a life sentence. So should the killers. Yeah, and Joe, by the way, um, and Mary, I'd even go a step further, by the way, because, you know, when I think of the people, and, OK, people will say to me, oh, they were children, Michelle, but, again, that doesn't really it doesn't affect me, but the, the people that killed James Bulger, Jamie Bulger, will, or everyone will be familiar with that story, you know, and people will tell me that my opinion's wrong because it was, ch- it was children that did it, but I don't even believe that those people, that those children should have been treated the way that they were because they were essentially granted this whole new anonymity and, well, you know, allowed to live life. Yeah, one, but one of them's not. One, one of them's out. One and, of them's out. Um, he was, I can't remember how old he was at the time. Um, they were about 10, weren't they? They were the top of my very, head. very young. I mean, you know, I can remember Mary Bell, um, you know, which, who I think was the first ever named child killer of another child. Uh, I mean, you either have to say there is no such thing as restorative justice or reform or rehabilitation, um, in which case you lock everybody up and you throw away the key, which leaves you in a very difficult position. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's certain crimes that, fair enough, you know what? Yeah, but if your you idea of... It's a limit. Probably, it's a yeah, I know. Limit. But yeah. your idea of certain crimes, and I think most of our ideas of certain crimes on, on children, but you cannot put a 10-year-old boy, however evil his actions, in the same category as a grown adult. Well, it depends what the 10-year-old boy's done. If the 10-year-old boy has done, and I'd, I work wherever because I think it's quite upsetting, it certainly would upset me and a lot of the viewers probably, but many of us will remember some of the nuances of that, what they did to that child, you know, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to be careful with my language. Um, I'm not quite sure why, but to me, you know, I'm really sorry, but no. If that's what you're capable of doing as a child... You know, I've got a child that's, what, how old is my child now? I don't know, say 18, 19 months old. 
you know, and he's starting to learn at this level, right from wrong. You know, you can't do that. What no means, what yes means. By the time that you're 10, you know that torturing a baby is wrong. And if you've got that in you, if that's in you to do that, I would worry that that is just well, never going to leave you. But then you, then you have no belief in any sort of redemption or atonement. Yeah, but you're, you're repeating this to me and I'm answering this and I don't know why it's not... I believe if you steal my purse on the way home, I believe that you might be lectured about the rights and wrongs, the dirt nick stuff from people, whatever. You might be able to change your ways. I believe that when you get to the point, and this is the thing, there is a line for me, when you are torturing your own children, when you are creating damage to a child that is akin to them being in a car crash, when you are abusing your child to such a point that they have to have their own legs amputated, well, I am sorry, you have no business being in some kind of circle, redemption, let's all get it off our chest and be counselled. You're gone for me, it's done. You've crossed that line. I think there's more, there is more of a question, though, about children, you know, crimes carried out by children because of the diminished responsibility and of the effect of their upbringing and, and the, the adults around them. There's def- it's definitely a more of a question there. Uh, I'm completely with you, though. I think that the main sort of, uh, you know, sort of o- obvious point is that adults who, you know, are fully responsible for their actions commit these heinous crimes. They should not be given the opportunity to reduce their sentence. I mean, you mentioned Baby P. And the mother of Baby P, she only served 11 years in prison. Only four of those were for the murder. The remaining seven were for selling X-rated photos while she was, you know, on licence or whatever it was. So, so you know, yeah, whole life sentences, we, we must have a system in which life means life. Yeah. But the interesting thing about the, the two children who were convicted of the Belgian murder is that one of them seems to have stayed out of trouble mm, since they became adults were released. The other one has been sort of in and out of prison. I'm not sure yeah. where he is now, but but he seems to have you know his character seems to have been set very early and have remained. And any prospect of reform seems yeah. to have been off the table. Absolutely, John Venables, and you know we don't know whether he was the one that was. Exactly. The ringleader and that the yeah. other boy was, you know. Yeah, whilst I'm on my little rant, I've evidently got out of bed the wrong side. I would probably even go a step further while I think about well, capital it, punishment, isn't it? That's what you're leaving no, 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 I would, <laughs> you know, if you're in charge of a social services unit, so if you're like, I don't know, the commissioner or whatever the correct title is, if, you, if, if you're in charge of a unit and you've got a little kid that has been repeatedly referred to your services and your service has basically, you know, failed them, as we all know that this this happens time and time and time again, I would probably look to make you uh, criminally responsible for that, have some kind of criminal punishment. Negligence. Yeah, I would. I think I will just say in defence of social workers, not necessarily the directors of social services who are on, you know, quite hefty salaries and are sitting a long way away from the front end of this. But most of the social workers that I've ever worked with are absolutely dedicated. And I think none of us can even begin to imagine how clever and devious people are at lying and concealing what's going on. And I think if you're short-staffed, under-resourced, you haven't got the backup, you haven't got the support of people around you, and the default position is, you know, that a child is probably better with its parents than in a foster home or a care home or whatever. I think we have to be a little bit, not forgiving, but I do think we need to understand 
what social workers are dealing with on a daily basis. And they're not just dealing with one baby pee. They're dealing with... There certainly could be a case for an investigation. And if it proves... And those are all mitigating factors. But if it proves that there was negligence, that could be... Well, there there will be, because there'll be a serious case review. We've seen so many inquiries. I used to to write the editorials, um, both at The Independent and at The Times. And it often fell to me to write editorials on this particular Mm. topic. And one of the most striking things about it was that in practically every detail, these cases were so similar. Yeah. Mm. Whether it was the age of the child, whether it was the whether whether it was the position of the uh, of of the natural parent and the, the other person in the house, there was a pattern here that was really very very clear. And there was also a pattern in how these cases. weren't actually dealt with Mm. in the way that, okay, so, you know, we never hear about the cases that are actually prevented, that are successfully dealt with. Um, But these cases had so much in common. The pattern was so clear. Mm. And then it went to the social workers and it went up the hierarchy and people's, well, no, actually, or they wouldn't let me in or I didn't look, I didn't actually Mm. look at the child or I wasn't allowed to see the child alone. And you You thought those common denominators would be a a factor that you could catch it for easily. But but, but that's about leadership, isn't it? Embrazened all over the wall of the social office. Well, um, by the way, apparently, uh, Baby P, the the kind of child that sparked my little rant at the start there, uh, as I was mentioning, he suffered more than 15 injuries, was on the at-risk register and apparently, get this, uh, received 60 visitors, apparently, from social workers, police officers and health professionals over eight months. 60 uh, interventions, visits, and you still don't manage to save that child's life. I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to try and come back in a better mood. I've got lots coming up. I want to talk to you about alcohol, uh, foreign aid and more. I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubery. Just a quick reminder uh, as to who my panel is keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight. We've got Jake Wallace-Simmons, who's the editor of the Jewish Chronicle, columnist at The Independent, Mary Jodeski, and Joe Phillips, who's a former spin doctor. Do you know, I always remember a little story when I just see that come up, spin doctor. I always remember, uh, I was having, when I first started here, I don't know, I've just realised I'm saying this live on air instead of in the break, but I always remember when we had you joining us and someone said to me, we was doing a medical story, and someone said, oh, it'd be really good because on the panel we've got Joe. And I said, no offence to Joe, but what's she got to do with the story? Because it's a medical story. They said, oh, she's a spine doctor. <laughs> it really made me laugh. So I every know. time I see that now, spin doctor. I will always remember. Well, I'm you, absolutely useless yeah, at spines. You've been put up as an expert in spines. It made me chuckle, so it did. Anyway, I digress. Let's talk foreign aid, shall we? Uh, we'll all know by now that the UK's foreign aid budget has been cut, and that means in practical terms that aid to Syria has been reduced by almost 70%. The charity, Syria Relief, is claiming that the cuts have led to children's education being terminated, which then, of course, in turn exposes them to things like child labour and early marriage. But with the cost of living crisis at home, there's many conversations right now, as there always is, let's face it, about foreign aid as a concept. Uh, How should we be spending it? Where should we be spending it? And crucially, right now, given all of the economic struggles that we're uh, facing here and that we know are about to get worse, how much should we be spending? Uh, Joe Phillips, let me start with you on this one. Your thoughts on all of this? I would say the whole thing needs a good review. Well, 
Um, I was greatly in favour of the G8 um, deal that was signed to put our um, foreign aid into law. I'm deeply disappointed, like so many people, that it was then removed from a legal obligation. I think foreign aid is terribly important. It's soft diplomacy, if you like. Um, I think we are brilliant at raising money for emergencies. You can see what, you know, even people, as you say, Michelle, who are suffering the cost of living crisis here, have managed to raise millions and millions and millions of pounds for Ukraine, for Afghanistan. And if there was, you know, something awful happening tomorrow, people would dig deep and they will come up trumps. Mm. But if you're really going to try and change things without going to war, and Mary will know far better than me on this because she's been a foreign correspondent, you actually need to invest in things like education. You need to invest in things like sanitation. You need to invest in things like we were just talking about children, in infant, mother and baby care um, to stop rising levels of infant mortality. There's a lot of things that can be done and there are certainly questions that can be raised about the duplication of aid, the uh, gravy train that I think sometimes exists in some places where those who know how to fill in the forms to put in a bid um, can do it. We also know that money has gone into the pockets of people that it was never intended for. Yeah. But I think to say, can we afford it? If we don't afford it, then we really don't have a place in the civilised world. We have a duty. Um, Jake, see, I don't agree with what Joe says about the whole enshrinement in law. I think if you enshrine a spend target, on whatever topic it is, by the way, if you said to someone, you have to spend, let's just say a million pounds, I'm being silly with the numbers, but let's just say if you have to spend a million pounds you know that what will happen is that the closer and closer and closer you come, so essentially cut off day, budget day, whatever you want to call it, people are going to be sitting there going, oh God, I, I had to spend a million pounds. I've still got 200,000 left. Uh, you'll do, you'll do, you'll, yeah, tick. I've, meet, I've met the law. Whew. And I think it's that enshrinement in law that creates you know, stupidity when it comes to spending and uh, poor outcomes and all the rest of it. What's your view on it all? I, I, I agree. I think that we tend to look, look at things through the wrong end of the telescope when it comes to foreign aid uh, in terms of how much we're spending rather than how we're spending it and on what. And in fact, I remember having conversations with people at DFID who I knew socially before, when DFID uh, existed uh, and they had this word which was an underspend. We don't want to have it. We've got an underspend mm. this month. And that meant that you, you wouldn't get so much money next month. And so let's find something, something, to, something to throw the money at. Absolutely. You know? And it's all of a sudden, with various councils, when they start coming to the year end and stuff, you see yeah, all manner of different projects. roadworks and everything popping up because they know if they don't spend that money, it'll be cut from the next year's budget. Exactly. And I think that, you know, the British public is, as you mentioned, um, you know, charity-minded. Charity we don't mind digging deep for, for, for clear emergencies and so on and so forth. But there is a fundamental question here, which is, does foreign aid work? Mm. That is the question. We've got to be looking at the results of pouring money into countries. You look at a country like Mali. Over 50 years, we spent more than four, I think, four and a half billion pounds. It's no better off now than it was in the beginning. Mm. We've, we've wasted so much money over the years on funding girl bands, on spending 17,000 well, pounds, on spending 17,000 pounds on bringing a representative of the Chinese Communist Party to Britain for a bit of a jolly, that sort of thing. Uh, and I think that those are the things that get people's backs up. Mm. And so I think it's not a question of spending the money. It's a question of spending it in a way that's effective. I mean, that story about the Syrian children going without education and all sorts of things. Um, nobody wants to cut aid that's doing that. 
We want to cut aid that's going into the pockets of corrupt officials, that's being embezzled by, by governments, that's being wasted, that's going into projects that don't work. We want to cut that. We don't want to cut aid that's properly beneficial. And I think that the target culture doesn't lend itself to accountability when it comes to the benefits of the taxpayers' money being spent overseas. Mm-hmm. Mary? I'm a bit of a fundamentalist in terms of um, foreign aid, and uh, Joe referred to my past as a foreign correspondent, and um, in a way, it's almost had the reverse effect, I regret to tell her, um, that I absolutely support government foreign aid going on things like disaster relief. I think where there are enormous, where there, where, where there are things like earthquakes. I mean, I, I, I went into um, what was then um, Armenia after the earthquake, um, and there were uh, was a big contingent of British aid workers. And there are people there. There, there are people who are trained to do that. Who can only do, who can who are the only people in the world who can do that. And they need to be sponsored, and I, I think that, that, that that's a business of government, and it's absolutely the right the, 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 the right thing for aid money to be spent on. Um, when you go further, um, one of the British contributions to after the Armenian earthquake was to build a school, and. You had it was it was opened with terrific fanfare. Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. She came down to open it. She was completely mobbed by enthusiastic locals. Now, now I don't know what's happened to that school, but Armenia was not backward in terms of educating its children. And yes, building a school to replace one that had been collapsed—that's yeah, fine. But when you start, you know, like these schools in Syria, we, you know, the, the NGOs have become absolutely spectacular at tugging at people's heartstrings, mm. especially certain, <clears throat> a certain, as it were, class and a certain um, people of liberal disposition. Mm. Um, they appeal to us all the time to say, oh, you know, if we don't do this, we won't be educating the girls. The mm. girls will be, you know, they're, they're, as here, they'll be going off to early marriage. They'll be, they're, they'll be in um, slavery, um, and it's all our fault. I think that is totally wrong, and I think there is a real risk, especially, in fact, in funding education programmes, that what happens is very much what happened in Afghanistan, and I see it in parts of um, Eastern Europe and in parts of the former Soviet Union, that Western countries have been educating and training a whole new caste, which is a sort of international class, which is very at home in the corridors of Brussels. It's very at home in London. Um, they travel the world and they're equipped to do it and they present a, a wonderful face of their particular country. But they're not representative. And what we saw in Afghanistan was when the Taliban swept across the country that those people in whose education and training we had, inv- we had invested to make them like us left the country. Yeah. And to an extent... Those but they've left the country to, to carry on, you know, to keep spreading that message. I mean, I, just to give you a very small example, and, I, you know, the girl bands thing, there are a million things that charities do wrong and they quite often get picked up and put on the front page of the Daily Mail in cause outrage. Barbara Bush um, 
president's wife went to Africa because one of the daughters was doing a, a gap year and working for an American charity or something. She was quite appalled when she went out to visit the daughter that girls were missing four days a month of school because they didn't have separate boys and girls toilets. So when girls were menstruating, they wouldn't go to school. She came back, she slammed a fist on the table and, you know, Mr. President, it's really simple. It's not going to cost a lot of money to build toilet blocks if that's what's stopping girls going to school. That's a really practical, sensible solution. Making sure that people have clean water is not you know, the sort of making them fit for the corridors of Brussels and Whitehall and yes, Westminster. all too often what happens is that we dig those wells and we provide the technology and it lasts maybe half a year mm. and then it falls into disrepair because the rest of the infrastructure that you need and uh, almost the, 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 the culture to keep those things going is missing. Well, there are silly so things as well. Where we, we, well I was okay, just going sorry, to say that it, it does tend to feel a little bit white saviour as well. Yeah, I'm thinking and that. And I think that and you have, um, you have in, you know, uh, countries and economies in the developing world that, that their own development has been stunted by their addiction to aid money, uh, by which it, it sort of it means that they end up being more dependent upon money coming from coming from Western governments rather than uh, utilising their own development and developing themselves. I, mean, I, remember, I was a foreign uh, reporter for for about five years as well. I remember on one occasion being in uh, northern Nigeria covering the Boko Haram story in Maiduguri, uh, and that, you know, recipient of lots and lots of aid. Some of it very good. I say it's on a UN base there, which is obviously a good thing. Um, but I remember there was a story in the local paper about how a whole, I think, several million dollars had been stolen from a government offices by a snake that had eaten it. <laughs> that old chest. Stories like that. And what, just, that the, like level the, of, the level my of <laughs> the level of corruption is is huge, and the fact that we're funneling money into corrupt countries that don't really use the money to develop properly their, their country, but instead they sort of allow it to, 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 to prevent people from dying while funneling off money for themselves. But then it's about transparency and about, about accountability, isn't it? And it's yeah. about following the money and making sure the money goes where it's wanted, not to say we're not going to do anything apart from a crisis. Well, Thomas says, Michelle, simple, charity begins at home. Oh, uh, Elise says, foreign aid is a great gesture of generosity. However, a country like the UK should first make sure all the British people are well before giving to another. Um, I have to say uh, that sentiment is coming through quite a lot. Someone else says, when you're looking uh, about success, if your measure of success is corruption, then yes, foreign aid has been successful. Strong opinions coming there. Uh, Let me know your thoughts. Going to be reading out some more of your feedback uh, after the break. Also, when we come back, I want to talk to you about alcohol. Do you think uh, the UK has a problem with our relationship with alcohol? Apparently, reality TV is contributing to some of it. Uh, Do we reckon that we need to kind of start looking at how booze is represented in reality TV? Is that going to fix things? I'll have that and more after the break. Coming up on The Mark Stein Show, Charlotte Wright joins to share her struggles with the vaccine compensation scheme after losing her husband last year. Laura Perrins will be on hand to address the media groupthink on COVID lockdowns. Plus, we are joined by singer-songwriter and guitarist the great Ted Nugent as he releases his latest album. All that and more on The Mark Stein Show from 8 o'clock. Coming up. 
Coming up on Dan Wooten tonight, as the polls close, we'll bring you the latest analysis on the most important local elections in a generation. Plus, it's an unmissable night of unfiltered opinion with social media sensation Zuby. Plus, political firebrand and Whitaker. That's Dan Wooten tonight, Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News. Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes & Co. with me, Michelle Jubery. Paul, you've emailed in and I like you. I like the cut of your jib, Paul, because we've been talking at the start of this program about, you know, these kind of whole life tariffs, whole life orders, whatever you want to call them, whether or not you should ever be able to appeal with a view to reducing your sentence. I personally think absolutely not. We've been debating whether or not you can uh, have like a redemptive society. Uh, I always say there's a line and Paul says, Michelle, lifetimers do have the chance of redemption by simply accepting that they should serve the rest of their life in prison as a civilized world would expect. Yes, I like that. And I completely agree with you. Anyway, Nigel Farage uh, is coming up at seven o'clock. Nigel, good evening. What have you got for us? Good evening. Well, we will talk about Baby P's mother getting parole despite the government appealing and asking whether that's right. We'll be looking 40 years on from the sinking of HMS Sheffield. Is it time the French fessed up and told us more about their Exocet missiles? And a report has come out suggesting that London cab drivers should not need the knowledge and that Ubers should be able to use the bus and taxi lanes. We're going to have a debate between the report's author and a leading member of Britain's black cabs. That should be interesting. And on Talking Pints, it's part two. We got rudely cut off last night debating the Hunter Biden laptop. It was a gremlin. It wasn't some kind of conspiracy. We'll continue that this evening. Oh, it sounds good. Hey, by the way, Nigel, I was in a black cab this afternoon and I asked him about his thoughts about the whole knowledge thing and is it necessary? And he said to me, he even said he was going to be listening tonight. So it's good evening if you're listening to me. I hope you are. He told me that hands down, he reckons he could be any sat nav, any day of the week using just his knowledge. There you go. He believed in it very yep, much. I, yeah, well, I do too. I'm very much on the side of London's black cabs. And, you know, actually, they're not just a symbol of London. They represent a very high standard too. So the report's author is going to be tested. There you go. Well, look forward to that, Nigel. That's coming up at seven o'clock. Now, uh, here in the UK, apparently we're turning into a nation of boozers. I love the way it says turning into. I would have thought that was long gone. I thought that ship had sailed. Uh, anyway, it's all down to reality TV, apparently. Uh, researchers are accusing shows such as Made in Chelsea and Love Island of bombarding young people with images of alcohol. Out of over 260 episodes from 20 reality TV programmes, alcohol appeared in 98% of them. I'll start with you on this one, uh, Mary. What do you why? think? I don't know. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll be honest and I'll say why you. Because while I'm talking about alcohol, ladies and gentlemen, you can't see this because it's out of shot. But over there where I point, there is a decanter with alcohol in it. So I think I just naturally gravitated towards it. <laughs> and I remembered I was working and focused on you instead. <laughs> there you go. That's why. Uh, so what do you think to all this, Mary? Well, I think it's... In some ways, it looks almost like a council of despair because, so far as I understand, all the official statistics say that alcohol consumption among young people has actually been falling and falling quite fast. So that it's no longer quite the um, 
the, 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 the desirable commodity that it all really treated almost as a necessity by older age groups. So I think that in that respect, it almost looks as though there's this mass product placement of alcohol to try and bring back young people to um, to, to pay the government's taxes. Um, so, you know, that's, a, that, that, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it, I mean, I would say that, you know, yes, there is a lot of alcohol on just quite ordinary programmes. It's quite a normal thing. And maybe, you know, if we look at this in, say, 10 or 15 years' time, that it'll be something like smoking. You know, if you watch old films or old documentaries, it's entirely common. Everybody's puffing away. Um, Now... You find none of that at all. Well, yeah, I remember the old talk about picture mm. with the cigarette holder. Yes. Joe, where do you stand on this? Well, I was rather surprised actually when I was talking to um, your producer that there are not the same limits on alcohol appearing on television or on screen as there are on cigarettes, tobacco, and um, I can't remember what the other thing was that we were talking about. So I was quite surprised that it's not in line. I mean, you know, we're sitting here, we've just been, or you've just been, promoting Nigel Farage, who part of his programme is set in a bar. Hey, in don't a get us in trouble as no, well. No, but I mean, you know, it's it sort of... I've never seen these programmes, I have to say, these Love Island, Made in Chelsea sort of thing. But Mary's right. I mean, most young people now are not... Uh, they're certainly not drinking in the way that probably you and I were, Mary, in the good old days of Fleet Street, you know, where you'd go out for lunch. Nowadays, nobody goes for lunch anywhere, and if they do, they tend to drink water. I think people are much more abstemious. I think it's more likely to be the the stay-at-homes, um, you know, the middle-aged mums, perhaps. It's the wine o'clock syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, we can get a bit too puritanical about it. Jake? Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, it's absurd, isn't it? There's, I think the thing I want to say is there's nothing wrong with alcohol. It's okay to have a drink. It's legal in moderation. It's fine. Uh, it's a big part of our culture. People enjoy it. They love it. It's a big part of our life. And the idea that taking alcohol off Made in Chelsea is going to affect hospital admissions for alcoholism is totally ridiculous. I mean, how many young people actually watch Made in Chelsea? I don't know that their viewing figures are that impressive as to claim to influence an entire generation of young people. It just feels to me as an excuse to sort of, as you say, to moralise a sort of petty puritanical nature. Just give us our freedom and let us but drink. But it's not. Apparently, this does actually um, make an impact. So, for example, um, you know, Mad Men, I've never watched it, but apparently there's quite a lot of whiskey um, involved yeah, that in that. that was set in the that, 60s. Yeah, but no, no, but what I'm saying is, apparently, what they're saying is that this particular whiskey brand had... I quote, it became immensely popular after an almost 17-year slump. But what's said that wrong that with a whiskey brand being brand. popular? I like whiskey. Yeah, well... It's just drinking it too... If I drank a bottle a day and end up in hospital, then fine. Ex- but it's OK to that, enjoy I mean, a drink and, and actually, to enjoy Mad, your life, Mad Men was a perfect example of um, how things have changed because everybody smoked, including pregnant women. Um, and there were, you know, there were scenes of people going out for a picnic and when they finished, they just you know, flipped the rug up in the air and all the rubbish went on the ground and they just walked away and left it. Sort of things that we would find absolutely shocking now. And I, I sort of think, OK, well, so somebody goes and drinks the, you know, Don Draper brand of whiskey. 
What's the difference between that done responsibly, mm. as you say, and popping out and getting the fake tan or the outfit that somebody else is wearing? But I think also, you know, on a serious note, people are, as you both say, people are drinking less. And the reason is because we know more about the effects of alcohol. Yeah. I mean, I'm drinking a bit less. I still enjoy a drink very much, but I try to have a couple of days off. <laughs> We've got a few days off. And, you know, that's because I care about my health and I'm trying to implement those, those decisions responsibly and in a way that I can enjoy my life more. I think we need to entrust people to make responsible decisions and don't think that everyone's just a sort of brainless, uh, brainless uh, sheep that's going to follow whatever Made in Chelsea does. Um, I had a burn pit with you as well, but I'm going to have to pick it off air because I saw you said, uh, you know, reality TV, it's not the place for moralising, given the type of people who view it. I thought to myself, I'll be pulling you up on that, young man, given that I was indeed on a reality TV show. But I'll have Oh, to I didn't mean to criticise reality TV. That <laughs> no, was, that was only, taken out of context. I'm only joking. <laughs> I, I thought it was hilarious. Um, Paul has been in touch saying... Uh, Again, Michelle, I had my, I had my. Fa- I think it's. I think more than one person called Do Paul. You, I think, no, I think it's just one person well, who Paul, just agrees with you. No, all the Paul's time. been in touch to tell me that he had his first can of alcohol at seven forty-five a.m. this morning. Crikey, Paul! I've got to be honest though. You then send a second one saying, Michelle, can we have a date, please? Got to be honest. You're not really selling yourself that well, Paul. There, so I've got to say no to that one. Uh, many people though, are saying it's not about the drink. It's about. Uh, you, the way that you behave once you're on it, Gavin says, uh, all this talk about alcohol, the fact of the matter is, it's now getting way too expensive. Well, yes. uh, yeah, a lot of people would sit there and say, I'd love to have a drink, but actually, absolutely, they can't afford it. Um, what else? Lots of people saying, again, another one, it's not the alcohol that's causing the problems, it's the unruly behaviour. Kim says, is there any wonder we all drink alcohol right now with everything that's going on in the world? The state of politics is enough to drive anyone to drink. Well, there you go. Uh, by the way, I was asking you at the start of the programme, do you live in a posh area? Uh, do you think you do? I don't think I do. But apparently, if you're wondering whether or not uh, where you live is posh, there's a few signs. Get this. Uh, apparently, you'll have a yacht dealer nearby, a gelato shop in the high street. And uh, oh, I, I nearly said, uh, in fact, you I nearly, nearly said a different word. I nearly said, did. anyway, you'll have things hanging in butcher shop windows. Anyway, very quickly, do you, any of you recognise that, if you live in one of those kind of areas, do you have like yacht dealers on your back door and all these kind of things? Yes, no? Uh, we don't have yacht dealers. We do have very good butchers, but I knew we were in a, an up and coming place when there was a new sourdough breakery opened and all the people who we call, not very politely, the visitors, the tourists, started queuing there, having walked past the baker who's been there for 100 years making love. So you're in, you're in a posh area. What about you? Well, I live in in Winchester, which is often number one of the the best places to live in Britain, so I'm very lucky to live there. And I suppose it is quite posh, but there are no yacht dealers around. Well, no, the other Um, other signs, by the way, Mary, apparently if you've got flowers on your lamppost, chocolatiers, if you've got detached houses, really... Uh, if you've got people in Tweed and Wellis, a quick yes or no, are you in one of these posh areas? Well, I live in the very centre of London and we do, courtesy of Westminster Council, we do have flowers on some of our lampposts. On the other hand, the light that's dispensed with those lampposts is so dim um, <laughs> that I would find it hard actually to identify whether the streets were cluttered or littered. Can't find or your, your yacht dealer. Can't find the local yacht so, dealer. I don't know what we've concluded there, but uh, we've got a mixture of poshness and not. Get this though, one of the signs of a posh area is red telephone boxes. Well, that uh, rules out of all of Hull then, because did you know we have white or cream or whatever you want to call them, telephone boxes in Hull. So we do. So unfortunately, if you're watching it Hull, we're not that posh. 
but we probably already knew that, didn't we? Anyway, that's all we've got time for. Joe, Jake and Mary, thank you very much. Another story that caught my eye very quickly, by the way. Um, Michelle and Joe, that was one of the highest names of people in prison. That was on the list. There was a really? list of people's names in prison, Michelle and Joe. Anyway, I've been told in my ear I've got to move on. Francis, you've emailed saying, Michelle, you're a lovely, lovely human being. Francis, I appreciate that. I'm going to print it out and stick it on my wall. Have yourself a lovely evening and I'll see you at six o'clock tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.